Well, good morning, everybody. That you do. Today we're in our resilient series, and we're in week number four of the series. We've only got one more week after today. We've been talking about resilience, and I want to start with a definition. Resilience, we've been talking about this every week, is harnessing difficult emotions to build your faith. Because remember, here's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to take difficult emotions, emotions that, that sometimes we experience and we don't know how to handle. And young people, I want you to hear this. I think this is something, especially for young people to get a hold of. I, I think all of us need to hear this, but especially for young people, there's, there's a movement. I think the enemy, Satan, is doing this thing in, our, in the hearts of our young people where he's getting you to experience emotions like anger or fear, anxiety, or shame, today's topic, or grief, which is next week's topic. He gets you to experience those emotions, and you don't know what to do with those emotions, you don't know how to handle those emotions. A lot of times it's because we don't talk about our emotional lives in church. When we think about our discipleship, when we think about following Jesus, we're just thinking about our spirit, quote unquote, spiritual lives or maybe our intellectual lives and all that stuff's important. But the Bible says that God made the whole person and he wants, to give, he wants us to give the whole person to him. So that means that our emotions need to come under the category of discipleship. We need to give our emotions to Jesus as well in our discipleship. But the enemy knows that, that we don't, a lot of times we don't like to talk about emotions, especially men, by the way, especially men. We stuff our emotions, we don't handle our emotions well, so you come up against this emotion, you don't know what to do with it, and, and you're, you, you end up standing sort of at the fork in a road here, where you're either gonna, you're either gonna submit to God more through that, that's being resilient, you're gonna harness those emotions, and and it'll draw you closer to Jesus, or that emotion is going to be so hard for you to handle, so hard for you to deal with, that you move away from God and you bail on God altogether. And young people are bailing on God at unprecedented rates today. Young people, I think the stat is something like 80% of kids who are raised in the church, by the time they graduate from college, have bailed on their faith. That's, that's sad to me to see that, that the enemy is winning with the hearts of our young people. And it's not just young people, it's, it's you older people as well. It's not just us young people. Okay, I wasn't sure if you're going to laugh at that or not. I was kind of hoping you wouldn't. I, I was hoping you were like, yeah, he is a young person, that makes sense. But I think, I think some of us more mature people as well, man, we... We experience stuff, I, you know, the older I get, the more I experience grief. We're going to talk about grief next week. The more I experience grief because, because you're around people who, you know, you've got loss in your family and, and people are, you know, this, this is just the way of the world that, that people pass away. And maybe some of you are in a family right now where you're dealing with that. You had a loss this last year or, or you're in the middle of that. I know that we've got several people at this Riverdale campus that we're praying for even now. And so it's so easy to, to experience something like grief. We'll talk about that next week. And then and not to know what to do with it. You're overwhelmed by grief. And again, you're at this fork in the road where, you, where you're going to say, are you going to harness that to, to draw you closer to God? Or are you going to say, I can't handle this. God, how could you allow this to happen? And you bail on that. Now today we're talking about shame. And one of the things we've been saying in this whole series is, is emotions are neutral. Emotions aren't, aren't bad or good. I mean, it, I mean, I guess they're good in the sense that God 
that God gave us our emotions and God experiences emotions. So emotions certainly aren't bad, but they can be used for good or for bad. And I'm sure what you're saying right now is, hold on a second. How, how can you say shame can be good? I can understand that anger can be good because Jesus had righteous anger. Or even grief next week can be good because God can use grief. But shame seems like a bad thing. Shame is always bad. Some of you might be thinking that. In fact, when we were prepping this sermon as a pastoral team, we kind of kicked this around a little bit. We're like, is shame a good thing? I mean, I mean, God, God didn't ever experience shame. And then Pastor John Swan pointed out to us, well, actually, no, Jesus was shamed on the cross, even though it wasn't his fault. They shamed him. He took on the, our shame on the cross. So, so even God experienced shame, even though it was no fault of his own. But some of you might be sitting here saying, I'm not really sure that shame is a, could ever be redeemed. I'm not sure that shame could ever be good. But, but I want to challenge you with this thought. Think about if you've ever used the word shameless before, like that guy is shameless. That's not a good thing, is it? To be shameless means to, means to delight in sin. To be shameless means to just sort of cut your losses and do whatever you want, live however you want. In fact, an article from Ligonier Ministries entitled Our Shameless World puts it well. I'm going to just read it to you real quick. It says, the world delights in bold sinners. This is shamelessness. The world delights in bold sinners who flout God's word and expect no punishment whatsoever. Our culture celebrates the skillful, cold-blooded assassin, the bold thief, the self-righteous vigilante, the foul-mouthed recording artist, the creative rebel, the blasphemous stand-up comedian, the naked actress, the fornicating glamour couple, the self-worshipping athlete. I would add in there the godless politician. Like our culture celebrates this. I mean, young people, you, the, inf, the influencers in your life, so many of them are shameless. That means that they don't, they, they flout their sin. They, they live in this sinful way, this bold, sinful way in this culture. This is just how it is, and it's, it's even referenced in Scripture. Ephesians 5, verse 12, it's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. It's shameful. Or how about Romans 1? I encourage you to read Romans 1. There's no football games today, so just read Romans 1 when you go home today. Here's what Paul says. God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. It says in verse 32, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. Here's the progression of shame. I want you to think about this. Here's the progression of shame. Again, you've probably experienced this. I've experienced this, at least the first part of the progression. You do something sinful, and you feel a sense of conviction about it, a sense of guilt and shame about it. That's the first step. You do something sinful, and you the Bible says that we, every one of us has eternity written on our hearts, that every single one of us experiences. We understand, we have this, this basic sense, we're all born with this basic sense of right and wrong. We know when we're doing something wrong. It's one of the greatest pointers to God, I think, is that we all know right and wrong. We all know good and bad, but then, but then culture grabs us and pretty soon we start 
doing groupthink, and pretty soon we let the secular world tell us how to think and what's right and what's wrong, and we start getting a little bit confused. And so the next part in the progression is after you sin with a sense of shame, the next part in the progression is, is you sin without a sense of shame. You start sinning and you start stuffing that sense of guilt and shame. And, and you start, instead of listening to God's word, you start listening to the world. And, and you start buying into the world's message because you like that better. The world's message feeds your flesh. And so you go from, from sinning with a sense of shame to sinning without a sense of shame. And then what it's saying here in verse 32, the next, the last part of the progression, worse yet, is you encourage others to do it as well. That's the final part of the progression. And now you're pretty, pretty you're, it's, like, it's like misery loves company, right? It's like, hey, you join us as well. And this, young people, this is what the influencers are doing. This is, this is exactly what the influencers are doing. Romans 1, verse 32. They're encouraging others to be shameless in our culture. We should probably define shame. We're talking about it all day today. Here's what Oxford says shame is. It's a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Okay, so shame is when you, when you feel humiliated, you feel distressed because you recognize there's a consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. But again, here's what, here's what shamelessness is. Okay, look at that definition. So shamelessness is when you say there is no wrong, there is no foolish behavior. I can just do whatever I want. In the judges period in the Old Testament, it was like that. They, it says that the people just did what, everyone did whatever they wanted. Everyone did whatever they thought was right. Does that sound familiar? We just do whatever we think is right. There's not a standard anymore. Everybody's their own God. And so I think more and more we have a shameless culture. Now again, this isn't a new thing because Paul talks about it in Romans 1. The, the, the Roman culture was like this as well, just a shameless culture. Where, where there was no morality anymore. So that's why I say that shame can be good because shamelessness is bad. It's bad to be shameless. But let's put it on a spectrum because I want to make sure you understand the other side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum is shamefulness. If, if Satan can't get you to be shameless, right? If, if, if the enemy can't get you to just say, do whatever you want, live like everybody else, then the next best thing is to get you to feel such a deep sense of shame and guilt that you get stuck in that. And that's where some of you are today. I would guess that that's where some of you are today, not on the shameless side of the spectrum. Those people don't tend to go to church. I think that the burden that you might be feeling today is on the whole other side of the spectrum and where you feel so full of shame, you feel so full of guilt, you feel this incredible sense of condemnation. Some of you might be there even today. You, you know, there's a secret sin in your life and, and you're struggling to overcome it and you're having a difficult time overcoming it and, and this battle just feels like a roller coaster, it's just battle and you've been going through it for a long, long time. And I know, look, you come to church and you hear us talk about freedom in Christ and you hear us talk about living to honor God and, and you're thinking, I want to do all those things, but I can't. I want to do all those things. And so you carry around, maybe even today, you carry around this incredible sense of shame, like, what is wrong with me? And here's what I want you to know. The enemy wants you in that place. 
He wants you to feel condemnation. He wants you to feel guilt. He wants you to, he wants you to hate yourself. That's what he wants. If he can't get you to live for the world and live for yourself, he wants you to hate yourself. That's being shameful. So both ends of the spectrum are, are bad. And there's one more way to be bad, by the way. There's, we're going to talk about the good in a second. But I just got to say, there's one other thing where, where shame can really be bad. You can either be shameless or you can be so full of shame that you can't, you can't handle it, you can't appreciate life. Or, or the third bad option is you can try to work off your shame by being a good person. If the enemy can't get you to be shameless, if the enemy can't get you to be buried in the weight of your guilt and shame, then the enemy wants to tell you this religious thing. The enemy wants to say to you, look, here's the thing. Here's how you handle your shamefulness, is you need to work really hard so that your good works overcome your bad works. So the good things you do overcome the bad things you do. And some of you might say, wait a second, what's, isn't that a better option? No, it's not a better option. Because here's the problem, nobody could, ever, nobody could ever overcome their shamefulness on their own, by their own work. This is, this is the message of, of religiosity. The message of religiosity is you try your hardest to take by force what can only be obtained by grace. The Bible says you can't, you can't work off your shame. I want you to hear that again. The Bible says you can't work off your shame. You can't. So some of you are like, I feel like I'm right in the middle of this shamelessness and shamefulness and I'm just really trying hard to work off my shame. I want you to know I've got a message for you today, a message that I pray will set you free. Because here's the good news, okay? I think we've set up the bad news now. We're gonna talk about this, by the way, in the context of an Old Testament character named David. We're gonna... We got a lot to cover today, but I want, I want you to know what the good news is because there was a guy in the New Testament, the guy who wrote Romans, in Romans chapter seven, here's what he says in the context of this whole conversation. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And he answers his own question. Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see how it is, he says, in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And he realized that he couldn't work off his shamefulness. And then he says this thing, that I, this is the verse I want you to take away from today, and we'll come back to this, but Romans 8, verse 1. Right after he says all this stuff about being a miserable person, and I, I do what I can't, I, what I want to do, I don't end up doing. What I, what I end up doing is stuff I don't want to do. And he says at the end of all that stuff, he says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Some of you have never heard that verse before, and I want to read it again. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. See, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. I'll talk about it at the end today. But I want you to know, here's the good news, is in Christ Jesus, you can be free from your shame. In Christ Jesus, you don't have to let that guilt and that shame keep you, keep you living in sin keep you in that place of self-loathing that you can be free in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go to the Old Testament because I want, to, I want to share a story of a guy that I think is such a perfect story. We're going to have to do this quick. So you might have to write down some of these verses and go back and study them along with Romans chapter 1 later today since you have nothing else going on today. 
football games today. By the way, some of you don't, maybe don't realize that. There's a lot of football games. I'm going to try to get done because we've got to watch those games today. <laughs> Second Samuel, this is, this, is, this is the story of David. And this is a story of David committing sin that was so grievous that he had to commit more sin on top of it. And we all know what happens when we commit sin is it creates incredible sense of shame. And David had it. I want to show it to you in these verses. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. This is for a whole different sermon. But basically, this is the, this is the David who slayed the giant with the slingshot. It's that same guy. Later on, adult David became the king. And here he is. And he's, I mean, Israel is at the height of its power at this point in David's life, and, and everyone else is out fighting the wars, and David is staying home, twiddling his thumbs. And whenever you're doing that, by the way, you're setting yourself up for disaster. And he did. You know the story, just real quick. He look, he's, up, he's up on top of his palace one day. He looks out across the town, and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath. Bathsheba is her name. And he says, who is that? And they said, well, well, we'll send for her. So she comes over and he finds out that she's the wife of one of his generals, a man named Uriah. But he couldn't help himself. David couldn't help himself. He slept with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. Sin number one. Shame number one. Could you imagine the shame, the sense of shame and guilt for doing this? Like, what a terrible person you are, David. And so David does what anyone would do. He sends for Uriah to confess it to Uriah. Nope, that's not why he sent for Uriah. He sends for Uriah to try to get him to sleep with his wife so that it would all be covered up because there were no DNA tests back then. So nobody would have known. He could have gotten, it would have been the perfect crime. Problem is Uriah was a man of honor. That makes David feel even more shameful, doesn't he? Uriah said, there's no way I would do sleep with my wife while my men are out on the battlefield. And they don't get to do that. So he slept on the doorstep. He didn't even go inside his home. So David's like, well, that didn't work. So what did he do? What any man would do, he confessed to Uriah. Nope. Nope. He still isn't going to make the right choice. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield and he sends a note to the other generals and he says, Put Uriah on the front lines and then pull your people back. And that's exactly what they did. So Uriah died on the battlefield. Oh my gosh. Could you, could you imagine like the, the sense of shame that he's feeling now at this point? But remember, this is still secret sin. And some of you, maybe you can relate. Because you feel like you've, you've got this sin, that you're, this burden that you're carrying on your own. And, and nobody knows about it. Or maybe very few people know about it. And you have this sin. And, and, and it's, it's, this is how sin works. Man, when sin stays secret, when it stays in the dark, all what happens is it just grows. Just like what happened with David. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So here David is. And and he thinks at this point that he got away with it, but your sin will always find you out. And we see it in 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to read this because it's so good if you've never read this before. The Bible says that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. Can you see where this parable is going? David's the rich man. Uriah's the poor man. 
The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. This is a parable about Bathsheba, his precious wife Bathsheba. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Some of you love animals, and you're like, I love this story. It gets worse. It says, one day, a guest arrived at the house of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. How are you feeling right now? You're getting, pretty ang- you're getting pretty angry, aren't you? Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Go back to that sermon if you feel that way. David felt that way. It says, David was furious. Righteous anger. Righteous anger, no, it wasn't. David was being called out. But here's what he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole. And I love this verse seven, it's so powerful. Oh my gosh, so powerful. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Could you imagine that? Like how David is feeling right now? He's like sin upon sin upon sin and he thought he got away with it. And here Nathan is telling him this story and David now realizes that he's caught. You are that man. This is the fork in the road, by the way. This is that place where some of you find yourself even today where God is being gracious enough, and it doesn't sound gracious, but trust me, it's gracious. He's gracious enough to send a truth teller into your life. Nathan was a truth teller for David, and it's a good thing. Man, we need truth tellers in our lives. We need people who are gonna call us out. We need people who are gonna say, look, this isn't right what you're doing, this isn't right. And Nathan was that for David. And this is where David did what I think we need to pay attention to if you want to get out from underneath your guilt and shame. Because again, this is the fork in the road. You might have thought the fork in the road was when he slept with Bathsheba or when when he tried to cover up that pregnancy or when he even sent Uriah out to his death. None of those were the fork in the road. This is the fork in the road. It's when someone tells you the truth and you have a decision to make. How are you going to respond to your sin? And here's what it says. David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said this, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. I just pause there for a second. Again, we gotta kind of move forward here in this message. We don't have a ton of time, but man, what a, what a, there's so much right there that David confesses it. He doesn't try to cover it up anymore. He confesses it. Confession is a salve to your soul. And Nathan said, God has forgiven you. But here's the thing. Forgiveness sometimes doesn't necessarily mean there won't be consequences. And Nathan went on to say, nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. So you'll live, but your child's gonna die. Go back and read that. 2 Samuel chapter 12, you'll see that David, for seven days, he tore his clothes, he fasted and prayed and wept and 
went to God and said, please, please let this child live. Please let this child live. I mean, he was, this was his, this was his bitter weeping over his sin and the consequences of his sin. It's a great example for us of how we should really grieve our sin. We'll talk about that next week a little more, that we should grieve our sin. And he did, but the child died at the end of seven days. Now again, so you think, well, what's gonna happen now? Because now, even more shame, right? He's feeling all this shame. Now, now a child died because of his sin. That's shame number, I mean, by my count, number four. We're up to number four. Terrible shamefulness. What is he gonna do now? And to the shock of all of his attendants, it says that David got up from the ground and washed himself and put on lotions and changed his clothes. And then he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. So you see what happened? Even this drew him, drew him closer to God, not further away from God. And after that, he returned to the palace and he was served food and he ate. So here we see this guy that I would say is resilient. You might say he's stuffing it. No, I, actually, I think he's showing resilience, that he's admitting his sin, finally admitting his sinfulness, maybe a little bit late, but he's admitting it. He's coming to God, and at the end of this, I mean, this, this like absolutely devastating thing for this child to have died, he ends up going to the tabernacle and worships the Lord in the midst of that. In fact, he wrote this psalm, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. This is a good psalm, by the way, to write down if you're in this place today and feeling the sense of guilt and shame for your own sin. He says, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. In verse nine he says, don't keep looking at my sins, remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And here's what happened, God did. God did. In fact, David ends up marrying Bathsheba and they end up having another son named Solomon and Solomon means God is my peace. That's the opposite of shame. So here, here David is who did, did these unthinkable things. Probably some of you are saying, how could he have done that? How could God have accepted him? Here's how God could have accepted him. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If, if you're here today, I want, you to, I want you to hear the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit is pointing you to Jesus and the forgiveness that we can experience in Jesus. That's conviction. Condemnation is when the enemy is leveraging your shame to push you away from God. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today, I want to encourage you to stop trying to work off your sin. Stop trying to overcome your shame by your own efforts. You can't do it. You can't take by force what God can only give to you by grace. The Bible says that Jesus took our shame and he took it to the cross and he nailed it there. The Bible says that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He didn't do anything deserving of shame. And yet they shamed him on the cross because of your sins and my sins. And the Bible says, here's the good news. The Bible says that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, when we turn to him and we say, 
I recognize I'm a sinner. I rec- I'm not going to try to cover it up anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to try to sin, add sin upon sin upon sin. I'm not going to try to run from it anymore. I recognize I'm broken. And by the way, if you're here today thinking that like your parents called me and told me about something, I don't know anything about any of you guys. I, we get this all the time from people. I, like, I felt like you were talking to me. It's because this is the human experience. We all have sin. We all have shame. We all have skeletons in our closet. Every single one of us does. The difference is when we're at the fork in the road, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to try to cover it up? Are we going to just live in that shamefulness? Are we going to finally let it turn us to a shameless lifestyle like so many have done? Or are we going to turn to the cross? Are we going to turn to Jesus? Because there is only freedom in Jesus. There's not freedom in any other option. There's no other way to get out from underneath that burden of guilt and shame. There's no other way except for by going to Jesus and saying, I recognize I'm broken. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I need you. I need that no condemnation thing. And the Bible says when you do it, you'll be free. You'll be set free. Friends, if you're at a fork in the road today, if you're at this place where seriously, maybe, you're, maybe you've even thought about it, like it's too hard for me to go to church because I hear these messages and then I feel guilty. That's not, no, you feel conviction. That's a good thing. That's a truth teller. That's a, that's a Nathan coming to you saying, you are that man, but not to keep you there, but to set you free from that because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. And even as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I recognize some of you might be in this place right now where where you just need to turn to Jesus. And so I want to invite you today to do that. If you're here today and, and and you want to give that guilt and sin and shame and you want to give it away, you want to be free of it, I just invite you to pray a prayer like this in your heart. Just say, Jesus, I recognize I'm broken. Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner, just like David. And I need you to wash me. I need you to purify me. I need you to create a clean heart in me today. And Jesus, I pray that that you would set me free from this incredible burden of shame that I can't handle. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take that. Thank you for nailing it to the cross. I trust in you today, Lord Jesus, to set me free from this life of sin. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.